Episode 40, From Wall Street to Stand Up with Emmy Award-winning comedian and writer Paul Mercurio. My name is Dan Mason. In 2012, I was overweight, getting divorced, battling depression, and feeling trapped in a career where I was successful but bored and unfulfilled. And it's actually the greatest gift I've ever been given. I use my pain as a springboard to discover my life's purpose. Now, I want to share the same tools and strategies which help transform my life with you. So you can live Life Amplified. Two things you've heard me talk about on this podcast if you're looking to take your dreams and make them reality. Number one, you have to have the willingness to speak up on behalf of your heart's deepest desires. For me, that is the great imagery of the book of Genesis. It doesn't say that God took some baking soda and flour and sugar and created light. It simply says he said, let there be light. And it was good. So speaking up on behalf of what we want, letting our voice be heard, declaring our intention is the first step to getting your dreams full. Then the second step is, is you've got to take massive action toward what you want. So many people walk around treating their dreams like their side piece. They wait till the family's in bed. They sneak downstairs. They might try to write for 45 minutes on the book they've always talked about. Or once every three weeks, they get out of the house to go to a coffee shop to put together their business plan. But if your biggest dream in your life is always something you're going to treat like plan B, you'll have a hard time turning it into plan A. And that's why I love this interview this week, and you're going to love our guest, Paul Mercurio. Today, Paul is best known as an Emmy and Peabody Award-winning writer for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Some of his other credits include The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where he also serves as the warm-up comic each night before they tape at the Ed Sullivan Theater. His stand-up has been featured on specials for Comedy Central and HBO, and he has a new one-man Broadway show taking place at the Actors Temple Theater in Midtown Manhattan called Permission to Speak, which is one of the most unique one-man shows I've seen in a long time. We'll talk more about that coming up in this episode. But more than anything, Paul represents that hero's journey from the corporate day job to living his highest vision for his life. After graduating Georgetown Law School with high honors, Paul worked as a lawyer on Wall Street at a top-tier international law firm executing multi-billion dollar mergers and acquisitions transactions for Fortune 100 companies. But he was also living a secret double life. Lawyer by day, comedian at some of New York's seediest comedy clubs late at night. And after a couple false starts on working toward his biggest dream, Paul cut the cord, left corporate America, and went into comedy full-time. It's totally paid off, and I think you're going to be inspired by his story. Some of the topics we'll talk about today is how falling on your face when going for your dream doesn't have to be the end, but a learning moment. Why asking the right questions to someone can bring a deeper connection to all your interactions in life. Why the story you tell yourself about your situation isn't necessarily the truth, and how to find out what is true. Why sacrificing for your goals and dreams is part of the process and how success ultimately won't come your way unless you fully commit to the process. We got links here in the show notes if you want to check out Paul's new show, Permission to Speak. And you can also check out his podcast, which we'll link to here, where he interviews all sorts of A-list celebrities from all walks of life, The Paul Mercurio Show. If you love the interview, you're going to love his one-man show. Paul is so engaging and just such a student of people. You can get ticket info for permission to speak here in the show notes. And if you love what you're hearing, let us know that you're listening. Just screenshot the podcast, upload it to Instagram or Twitter. You can tag him at Paul Mercurio, M-E-C-U-R-I-O, and you can tag me at 
CSC Dan Mason. If you got a big dream for your life and you're scared of judgment when you try to bring it to fruition, Paul Mercurio is going to inspire. Enjoy this interview on Life Amplified. Paul Mercurio, welcome to Life Amplified, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. I saw your show, Permission to Speak, mm-hmm. last night. What a unique night of entertainment. I wasn't really sure what to expect coming in. Uh, you know, the idea of a one-man show by a stand-up comedian, not really unique to Broadway or yeah. off-Broadway, but the way you're doing this is unlike anything that's been done before. Why don't you tell people a little bit about the show and why you're producing this? Well, Stan, it's your show. Why don't you do it? I'm, <laughs> I'm not here to carry your ass and my ass. You really make a good point about the one-man show a lot when comedians do them, and they're great. They tend to be, some of them, a fair amount of them tend to be long-form stand-up, basically, yeah. like kind of more storytelling-ish stand-up, which is great. This is not stand-up. It's a completely audience interactive show where I talk to the audience and bring them on stage or they volunteer to come on stage and just talk about their life. I found the best way to sort of grab people was to talk to them. It's really about just having real conversations with people. It's incredible the stories you get and it's structured as a theater show. There's an opening monologue, there's a closing monologue and there's a couple of other cool things that we do in, in the show as you saw. But the theme of the show is everybody has a story and given the opportunity, people will tell it. And in telling it, people become connected in that space for that hour, hour and a half that we're together. Like complete strangers up end up connecting either because they relate to the other people's stories or they empathize with them. They end up bonding or connecting after the show. And so it's just something that's very, very sort of organic and real. And I want it to be kind of like a ha- we're like all hanging out in somebody's basement almost you know just talking and people are just revealing these amazing stories about themselves because when you look at the statistics right now for like as advanced as we are and like we've exponentially grown in terms of our ability for communication via technology right it's like we've also exponentially grown when you look at the statistics right now and people just feeling lonely and isolated yeah is that something that you've noticed when you're out when you're talking to people is that sort of what led to the show or is it something maybe you've experienced in your life and you wanted to play with that idea on stage i think it's a combination of both what i found was how open people would be with me in a room full of strangers pretty quickly And I'm not doing anything magical. I mean, I do ask them the basic questions and I do try to give off the vibe, which is true that I'm not going to be a jerk, you know, or whatever. But like, I just think that people do feel disconnected. I feel like people feel isolated, even which is weird because there's social media and everything else. So we've been more connected than ever, but then it's still. Yeah, but it's also like that curated bullshit version of social media where people are putting like the best of their life or or the image they want to portray. Right. Nobody posts a selfie when they're, you know, emotionally eating the gallon (laughs) of Haagen-Dazs after a breakup talking about how they feel worthless. I do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, you're right. That's a really good point. I think if people feel like they're in a safe in a safe environment, and I mean safe to say whatever you want. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a double meaning to per- permission to speak. There's a little permission to talk. Then there's also permission to kind of say whatever you want to say and not worry about what I call contrived political correctness. Um, mm-hmm. And you saw a little bit of it in the show that you saw. But what happens is, especially I see this as a stand-up a lot, 
I believe in political correctness. I think like you can't just go around and say, you know, the N word and inappropriate things about people, whatever. But yeah. there is a thing called what I call contrived political correctness where people want to pretend like there are no differences between people and there's no racial or ethnic differences mm-hmm. and like everybody's the same and all of that and stereotypes don't apply. And that's all bullshit. I'm Italian. Movies that come out of Hollywood are about Italians are generally about the mob. <laughs> Because A, they're entertaining, and B, because you know who's in the mob? Italians. And you know who they cast in those movies? Guys who look Italian. Joe Pesci made a great career out of that. Exactly. But it's guys that look like me. You don't look Italian. You have blonde hair, blue eyes. You look more, you know, German or, I don't know, Nordic or Swiss or whatever. But, like, the point is, let's stop pretending, like, those stereotypes don't exist. So in this show, you're really allowed to sort of be honest, which is, I think, the other refreshing part of the show because we're so boxed in, especially on social media, where everybody tries to say and do the right thing and pretend. And so last night there was an African-American guy who was talking mm-hmm. about having two uh, wives. His first wife had his uh, mother of his three kids, and he had 12 brothers and sisters, 12 kids in his family. This guy, his father had three baby mamas. So... He had 12 kids with three different women. And yeah. I said to the guy, why is it that African-American men tend to sort of do that more than other races? And then a, a white woman goes, well, I don't think it's just African-American. And I was like, no, I kind of think it is. And she goes, no, it isn't. And I said, well, we agree to disagree. Now, in a lot of environments, I don't think somebody, in, in this case, was my show. I could say it, but I, people wouldn't be comfortable to say that. But they all think it. And by the way, afterwards, people said to me, I agreed with you. It, it tends mm-hmm. to be a lot of African-American men sort of put themselves in those situations more so than other ethnicities and races. And my point in that is that I think there, there needs to be a place where you can kind of just say what you want to say as long as it's honest and it's not mean-spirited and not worry about the PC police either. And in you speaking up to an African-American man about something that some people would consider to be a stereotype, it creates that safety you're talking about because the next thing that came out of his mouth was a story about dealing with a son, his son, who committed suicide. Yeah. Which in context of a stand-up or in a comedy show, you think it would kill the room, but it's almost like people wanted to love on this guy afterwards. Yeah, that's what kind of blew me away because even that one for me was like in the moment, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen here, you know? But he had seemed, you saw it, I don't know if you agree, but he seemed to be at peace with himself and so Mm -hmm. as a result, everybody else was, but it was still jarring. And I was like, I don't know, where's this show going to go now? You know, because at the core of it, it's supposed to be a comedy show, you know. Yeah. But the difference is it's not comedy in the sense of like, I'm going for a joke every 30 seconds about something, which I could easily do. Because if I do that, then it becomes about the joke and it minimizes the significance of what people are saying. So instead, you just kind of find the comedy in the right places. Like, for example, I had a person come on stage and I just couldn't tell. So I said, are you a man or a woman? She goes, well, I'm both. I go, you're transitioning, right? She goes, yeah. I go, what's your name? She goes, Mason. I go, that's the name you picked because it's ambiguous, right? She goes, yeah. I go, what's your real name? She goes, Mia. So it's a woman transitioning to be a mm-hmm. man, but she can't fully transition because she can't take some of the meds you need to take to transition because she has a heart condition. So we're two minutes into this conversation. She's 22, bipolar, had three electroshock treatments. She said she was you know, really bummed out that she couldn't physically transition. So I said, you probably can't look at yourself in the mirror, right? She goes, no, I can't. She goes, she started laughing. She goes, what, I, what do you do when you shower? She goes, well, I... I turn the shower on, I steam up the room, and I steam up the mirror. Then I get in the shower, and we get out of the shower. I don't have to see myself in the mirror, and then I put a towel over myself. And I said, it's weird because I do the same thing because I don't want to look at myself. And everybody laughed. Right. But that felt like the place for a little comedy, and she laughed. 
it was very heartfelt in the moment. But other people are going to relate to that regardless of whether they're transitioning. There's yeah. people who've struggled with weight and found some variation of doing yeah. that. That's the first thing that occurred to me. When I used to be 50 pounds heavier, I was like, God, I would have done that. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, I think it's what this show should do is I just ask questions that I have questions about. And then there's just silly fun stuff like the Australian sisters at the end last night of yeah. the show who yeah. were these like 60, 70 year old, just spitfire, ballsy kind of Australian <laughs> women who were just a hoot. The show you saw was representative of what the show is, a range of like just funny, silly stuff to more serious, heartfelt stuff. Always with comedy kind of like laced it in there, you know? It was funny. I left the show and then I called three friends to tell them about what I had seen last night. Just really? to have the conversation. Yes, I had like three separate conversations with people. Just about this idea that at the end, what we're all really looking for is to be seen for who we are. Yeah. The good stuff and then the parts we're not so proud of. Yeah. And to be able to stand up and be like, this is who I am and know that people are going to have your back and be like, you know what? That's okay. Yeah. And I think it's helpful not for just the people talking, but the people who are hearing it, it's cathartic for them. Because I've had people come up to other people. I've seen people go up to each other after the show and they're connecting after the show, which is to me the biggest reward of all, because that's the goal of the show. You know, I worked very hard not to have it be too schmaltzy or heavy handed, like, oh, you know, if we all just get together and hold hands, the world could be a better place. Well, no, not really. Like, it's, it is what it is, and hopefully it'll be a better place. But I think that if people can talk and connect, things are probably better. And then it's happening. Like, they'll go up to each other and they'll say, oh, I went through the same thing, or... There was a young couple that broke up, got their act together, and then broke up again. And people went up to them afterwards and went, you guys should still be together. It's clearly there's something between you two. And it was like really cute, right? Like people have become invested in other people's lives, which I think is a good way to live. Like I think we're so isolated. And I say in the show that we're nameless and faceless to each other. But when you take a beat and you stop to listen and think about somebody else, you realize you're not all that different than they are like a perfect example was i had a couple of lesbians on stage how did you meet they start to giggle i'm like okay there's probably a story here and one of them said i was married i had three kids my partner and i met at a softball game everybody starts laughing shocking lesbians at a softball game <laughs> they struck up an affair whatever she ended up leaving her husband divorcing her husband marrying this lesbian and they all lived together in the same house the two lesbians oh. the kids <laughs> right, and then. the ex-husband and that's what everybody did they all everybody did your face and went oh whoa whoa <laughs> And they live, they sleep in the bed that the husband and the wife slept in, the lesbian sleep in, and he sleeps in a spare room down the hall. Now, did you buy their life rights to sell for, you know, an ABC show? I have the book rights, the pilot rights. Okay. And uh, I'm going to play the ex-husband. And then what ended up happening was they came back the next night. And they brought their daughters, these three teenage daughters. I'm like, well, why'd you bring your daughters? They go, well, you know, we wanted them to see that you talked about this, like, just straight up without walking on eggshells, like, in a real way, like, not not overly sensitive about it, but not rude about it. You were inclusive with the comedy. And then they said a really remarkable thing happened, which is that when they first got seated that night, the first night they saw me, they were seated across from people or next to people who were heterosexual and clearly uncomfortable with the fact that they were gay and they read gay like yeah short hair yeah yeah you know, yeah you know the whole nine yards flannel shirt and then she said after they told their story and they came off stage that couple treated them completely differently they talked to them they bought them drinks they gave them a hug like and it took the boogeyman out of being gay for those heterosexual people who maybe never met gay people you know maybe they thought oh just all gay people do is have sex all over the place all the time or whatever right and they realized well here's two people who were family people with three nice kids and just like us they just happen to like the same sex but they're just as screwed up as we are right so that to me is really rewarding because the show's sort of 
doing something beyond just entertaining. You know, it's kind of opening up other people's views of people and maybe giving them a different look into people. And this whole idea about permission to speak and having people come up and just be who they are unabashedly, authentically, also ties in with a lot of your background and and how this whole journey happened from working on Wall Street into being a stand-up comic. Can you you talk about that? I mean, you are a guy who went to Georgetown Law. You were living the dream. I'm sure making six figures, own the condo here. Eight figures, buddy. Oh, yeah. Four nice. boats. Jordan <laughs> Belfer, is that his name? He had nothing on me. S- snorting coke yeah. from the hooker. I call him yeah. Pussy of Wall Street. That's what I call him. I wasn't making crazy, crazy money yet, but I was, yeah, I was doing yeah. well. Which is the dream for most people. Yeah. That's it. You yeah. go to work, get in at the law firm, you, you put in your 30 years, you retire. Right, you retire. And that's exactly what I thought I was going to do. And then started writing comedy and making videos and stuff and short videos and comedy films. And And where did that urge come from? Was it something that came out of nowhere? Had you always thought about it in the back of your mind? No, I, you know, I always just liked watching comedy as a kid. I would watch The Tonight Show and see, or Letterman and see, you know, somebody really cool was coming on. I'd be like, oh, can I stay up and watch, you know, whoever this comedian was, Steve Martin or whatever it might be, right? But that was as far as it went, because I grew up in like, you know, middle class kid, Rhode Island, you know, with parents have a little furniture store, you just figure you're going to go get a job, work 30 years and retire, yeah. right? And then I just started writing as a hobby. And then I got to see Jay Leno at a private function. And I went up to him and I had jokes and handed him my jokes. And he was like, okay, and took him with that crazy voice of his, which sounds like they're letting helium out of a balloon, like, you know, and they basically <laughs> called me the next day, two days later and said, I... I'll hire you to start sending jokes in for the Tonight Show monologue. And you're making $50 for your first joke yep. that airs on national TV yeah, on The Tonight was, Show. Yeah. And you're making crazy money doing the yeah. Wall Street and mergers and acquisition. Oh, yeah. But had you ever been more proud to make $50? No, than- oh my God, it was crazy. Yeah, it was just, it, it just transformed me. It was the power of that, those words coming through that box that I had been watching my whole life. And now they were my words and the effect that it had on people. So I think that's where there's that connection of like having an effect on people. Yeah. I felt like I was having an effect on people in my other job, in my Wall Street job. I didn't hate what I was doing, but it just didn't have the same depth of meaning, you know. So there's that difference between success, which is what most of us are taught we need to strive for. Right. But the fulfillment piece. Right. And it's also how you define success. Right. You know. I mean, we still live in a society where, you know, you're considered successful if you've got a lot of money and big houses. And I guess that is a form of success. But then is that person more successful than the guy that or woman that's maybe making $40,000 a year, but really changing people's lives, you know, a pastor or somebody that works in a nonprofit or whatever. So beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? Like, what is your definition of success? And so, but I had trouble with that because I felt like this comedy thing I was doing was very frivolous and meaningless and blah, blah, blah. And I should do more and whatever and be a Wall Street guy and make a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. The image of it. Yeah, exactly. Car and and suits. uh, And exactly. And so that was a struggle, like to kind of decide, no, it's okay to do this and like really kind of pursue it and really have a meaningful like career is probably a good way to put it as a comedian and as like someone that's doing comedy and making that connection to people was important to me. I felt like when I wrote something and somebody reacted to it, they were, that fulfilled me in a way that my other job didn't. And you really kept the comedy thing as like, it was almost like your mistress. It was the secret double life that nobody in yeah. your life knew that you were doing. Yeah. So what was a typical day like? So you like wake I up, would, you put would, on the Brooks Brothers suit. Yeah, and I would go to work and then I'd like work these crazy long hours doing these M&A deals and then 
in the midst of that, whenever I could try to write a joke or I had an idea, I'd write it down in a notebook. And then I would go to these deal meetings and I had like two notebooks for deal meetings and one was for the deal and one was for the jokes. And I wasn't taking any deal notes. I was just taking joke notes. And then I had to like recreate the minutes of the meeting. And then I would sneak out of work on a dinner break when everybody else would go to dinner and I would go to open mic nights and I'd have the car like drop me off a couple of blocks from the this dive, I would work these dive bars. Yeah, at that point, you're not playing Caroline's. No, so. you're playing like places <laughs> called like Downtown Beirut 2. <laughs> and I couldn't let anybody on Wall Street know I was doing comedy in these dive bars. They would be like, that's not appropriate for somebody. Because I was working in one of these really big white shoe law firms. And I couldn't let anybody in the, that world know that I was one of these guys. Because they'd be like, oh, this guy's got money. I'm going to hold him up. I'm going to roll him yeah. or whatever. Or just they're not going to take me seriously because I'm going to think I'm just some rich kid just doing it because I wanted to do it. What about family? What about like your, were you married at the time? I was when dating this was my going? now my wife. She's my girlfriend. We were living together, and I couldn't tell her. I was embarrassed to tell her that I was doing it. Why? You know, you work on Wall Street, especially mergers and acquisitions. It's a very macho, like you yeah. know, master of the universe thing. Yeah. There really is some truth to that. Dog eat dog, sort of. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know, you work all night, four or five all nighters in a row. I think I probably felt like it would be viewed as frivolous and silly and childish and diminish me in the eyes of those people. And I didn't grow up in a performing household or family, so I just thought my family would think, oh, this is just silly. I mean, you're going to be a comedian. You're going to tell jokes. You're on Wall Street. You're a mergers and acquisitions guy. You're working at one of the biggest firms in the world. I think it was the conditioning that I got as a person in society, which is that that's a frivolous whatever you got to go take on a serious thing doctor lawyer banker whatever i think people can relate to that though there's so many people out there that i talk to i mean this is what i do all day with clients is talk to people who have the nine to five corporate job that looks great on paper right looks great on instagram right but it feels like shit because it's like out of alignment with who they are right they get locked in it gets safe it's hard to make a change it's scary to make a change you know it was scary for me to make a change and you know i when i finally did i sold my apartment and i moved to a rooming house and i lived in this like for 327 dollars a month in a 10 by 12 room with a hot pot on the floor and i shared a kitchen and a bathroom with like two ex-cons and two recovering addicts it's incredible and a 300 pound phone sex operator who sold (laughs) Herbalife diet products door to door. Of course, because why? Why wouldn't? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. And I and I started to live the life of a comic, which quickly became disenchanting and not glamorous. And I'm like, what have I done? And I freaked out and I got really scared. Was it that you weren't getting the instant gratification? Yeah, and like it was that, it really, wasn't the fairy tale. Yeah, that... yeah. And then I got audited by the IRS because they thought I hid my money. And the guy said to me, because I had a lot of income. Oh then, well, you, yeah, you go and then, from and they go from that to literally no money in one year. And they're like, what happened to all your income? I'm like, well, I was a lawyer, a banker, and I quit to be a comedian and he looked at me and he went uh yeah right what'd you do with all the money and he thought i was bullshitting him <laughs> i'm like no i'm serious and then he said to me no person in their right mind would do that and he became the personification of all my oh doubts. my god totally triggered like every yeah, yeah. feeling of yeah. self-doubt so i was miserable and then i eventually went back to wall street frank called and said do you want to come back and help me and i'm like no i don't know and around the same time i had shot something for tv but i'd forgotten about it and i finally said yeah i'll go take an interview and all of a sudden i went i bought a new suit and i'm on the subway going to take an interview looking like everybody else and how did that feel like as shitty as it felt to be in the rooming house with the 300 pound herbalife phone sex operator how does it feel when you're putting back on the suit and getting on the same train with a hundred other dudes like you it felt really wrong 
and I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't, I was so lost. Like the comedy didn't feel right to me. And I was very lost at that point in my life, which was really scary because I'd always been very clear about what I wanted to do. And now I was like, I liken it to having like two howitzers ready to shoot and I didn't yeah. know where to shoot. I'm like, I could, yeah. I could do Wall Street. I could do comedy. I didn't really want to, neither felt right. I knew I was just like, I felt like a drowning man grabbing a life raft. So I basically was like, oh, I'll go take this interview and maybe this will spark something in me and this will be where I should be. And so I went and I took the interview and I got another one and I got a call back and then I got an offer. And I took every minute of the two weeks they gave me to decide. And I finally called and accepted. And then I hung up the phone. And I called my girlfriend who was living in Boston. I started crying on the phone. She oh, goes, wow. why are you crying? I'm like, because I just took a job I know I probably shouldn't take. I'm Sold lost. Sold your soul. I'm completely lost. Like, I was really lost, Like I, which was really scary. It's not one of these fairy tale stories where I say, I woke up and I left Wall Street. And then I got hired on The Daily Show and started winning Emmy Awards right away. Like, it didn't, it was like this up and down, up and down roller coaster, emotionally, very scary. So I went and I re moved my girlfriend back from Boston and we started, I recreated my life on Wall Street and I swore off comedy and said I'd never do it again. And three months later, I was back doing comedy again. <laughs> what was her reaction to that? She just was like, she just was like, you got to probably do this because, you know, and at that point I started to realize that probably it's cliche, but it picked me. I didn't pick it, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, I was at a, a client's office and old guy, older gentleman, CEO goes, did I see you on TV last time? I'm like, no, he goes, yeah, I saw you doing some, I think you were telling jokes, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, no. It's in front of a whole bunch of lawyers and bankers. I go, you go, he goes, yeah. I go, oh yeah. It was that show that I shot. It finally aired and they didn't tell me. Oh. And I had forgotten about it. And I was like, oh man, I'm dead. He got me dead to rights. He's going to get me fired like, because everything you would believe for years leading up to this is if they find out I'm done. Right. And then what happens? He just went. It was great. Was, hey, hey, everybody, my investment banker, this guy was a client of my firm. He, he wasn't my direct boss, but he was essentially my boss. He goes, uh, how about that? My banker's a comedian. Why don't we all go out to the club? This is in Phoenix, Arizona. Isn't there a club downtown? And we'll, we'll get a whole bunch of people out and we'll watch Paul. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm good. I don't need you to come out. But I needed that moment to get affirmation from that world that it was okay to do this. Permission know? to speak. Yeah, that's really good. I never thought of it that way you're good dan you're good <laughs> and uh and i don't know why i needed that permission i just think because of the way me the way i was brought up you know what i mean like i just it just always felt frivolous to me and then i just said you know what screw it i'm gonna just do it and like do it for me in the way i want to do it and really give it a shot as opposed to sort of halfway which is what i had yeah. done when i was living in that rooming house and getting audited and everything and running back out of fear and insecurity i running back to safety to go take a job that new job on wall street and so then I left again and moved to a smaller apartment and started all over again a second time doing comedy. And then it stuck that second time. And then how long until the real opportunity started of, happening? A couple of years after that. Yeah. But it was still a struggle. I was still having a lot of doubts. And then you're running races with friends of yours who are still on Wall Street and buying bigger and bigger houses. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I could have had that house. And I remember going to one friend's house and I just sat in the bathroom for like a half hour because I couldn't leave the bathroom because I was so overwhelmed with like regret. And depression of like, oh, what I could have had this. What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And it was hard for me to face it and look at it. And then I finally left that. I got out of the bathroom and I just told my friend I wasn't feeling well. And I went home because I couldn't deal with how much they were having and how little I had. And so it was very, very hard to kind of overcome all of that, you know, in those and those feelings. But now you're here. Emmy. Yeah. Daily Show. Yeah. Colbert Show. Yeah. And uh, Dan Mason show. Well, there, yeah, clearly the media highlight for you. Of all <laughs> these. 
Because I said to my wife one night, if I could just get on Dan Mason's show, she goes, what is it? I go, it doesn't exist yet, but when it exists, I want to get on it. You had it on your vision board. You I, actually manifested I this for I, me. Yeah, yeah. I think the interesting thing in your story for me is just like so often, like we keep ourselves in chains, right? Like to this fear for you, it was what is Wall Street going to think? I yeah. couldn't possibly be a good representation of this company if they know I'm out at Beirut too. But at the end of the day, what I'm hearing you say, it was, it was all self imposed all of that stuff was so yeah it yeah. was and that's what i think you don't realize when you're in the moment and it's very hard to be an individual i think yeah. it's very very hard in this society to be like and i don't know if i am but like i i just it's very hard to sort of you know what is it march to the beat of your own drummer kind of thing and i basically i guess had to get the gumption up to do that and then if you look at history you know a lot of the people that have achieved major things they've been told no you can't do that no you shouldn't do it no 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 and the more that people say no the more they say i'm going to do it and it was a very confusing time for me which was really scary you know and i didn't think i i didn't really have anybody to turn to except my college advisor who at one point said to me when i was really freaking out he goes look you got to understand that it's like you're swimming in the ocean and you left the shore and you're at the and you're at that point in the horizon where you can't see the shore you left and you can't see the shore you're going yeah. to but no if you keep going forward there'll be another shore that'll be perhaps more rewarding and so and I, rem I always remember that You're like that was the thing but, but so you, many people make the decision in that moment that I'm just going to turn around and swim back. Well, yeah, because you got to really fight it out. Like, you got to be willing to take a lot of punches to the head and the stomach to get to where you want to get. I think in anything. But, like, you know, I it's not been easy. You know, there's a lot of rejection and a lot of fear and a lot of doubts and a lot of worrying about money and this, that, and the other thing. But I don't think anything that, that's great comes easy. So I'm okay with that. Like, so if you yeah. want to achieve something that's really special or, like, really outstanding, I, I believe that there's a direct correlation between how much pain you have to go through totally. I, that's what i believe yeah. like even if i had stayed on wall street you know the sacrifices that people hear oh sag, yeah like those guys make sacrifices well they do like a lot of them have have broken marriages because of the work they don't see their kids they're constantly traveling they're under a lot of pressure to constantly be making a lot of money for the firm or they don't get their bonuses and if you don't get their bonuses they can't pay their whatever their mortgages and this that and the other thing so there's a cost to chasing the dream but there's a cost to staying stuck where you're at yeah, if, if you don't feel good about it, exactly. Like if you want a low stress job, that's great. But chances are that low stress job is not going to pay very much because otherwise everybody would have that low stress job and you'd, you're not going to be a public persona or whatever you might want to be. So I think if you want something that special that puts you into that special category, you're going to have to go through some kind of your own special hell a little bit. So for the person right now who's listening, because I run into people all the time, it might not be I want to tell jokes on stage, but people think they have a book in them or they have a song that they want to write. There's some art that they want to create right. and they're stuck there and they're on the ledge in that in-between place right. of the life that isn't fulfilling and the life they want to create. What's your advice for them? I would say just come see my show. Yeah. Like Talk about it on stage multiple times. Bring your family, <laughs> buy the premium seat, buy the T-shirt afterwards. I think that they gotta just get their head around the fear and the insecurity. Yeah, because that's the thing that's the cancer part of this. Like whether or not you can do it is that'll prove out one way or the other. Like I mean, look, there's some people who just aren't may have a passion to do something, but they're just not very good at it. That's gonna happen, right? But at least if you've tried it and really, truly tried it and pursued it and just everybody and told you, look, you really suck at this or this isn't your calling, then you'll sleep well at night. So I would say you have to build a plan that makes sense, that allows you to kind of make your way to the point where you do what you want to do full time. 
which means that you're going to have to put in a lot of sacrifice. And, you know, like I, when my friends are out going on ski vacations or whatever, I was not because I was trying to save money so I could potentially do this. And like, you have to sort of just say, how badly do I want this? And if I want it badly enough, I'm going to go do it. And that just means literally going to do it. So that means going to coffee shops and playing your music or doing your poetry or telling stand-up or sitting down and writing religiously every night when you're exhausted you know it's easy to go to work and come home and say i'm exhausted oh i can't write tonight and i don't need to write because i work so hard today it's like well then don't bitch later if you don't have your ultimate Mm. dream i think people have to understand that you have to realistically be willing to sacrifice a lot a lot a lot and the people around you have to sacrifice a lot for you to break free of what you're doing and do what you really want to do and even then doing what you want to do is no guarantee it's going to happen but at least you know you're doing it and you're doing it 100 percent and you're pursuing it i talked to a lot of people come up to me after shows and you could tell like yeah, you know, I got a guy going, yeah, but you know, I got to hang around at the clubs and I, I, I got to work in the morning. And I just said to the guy, well, I don't know. I don't think you should be pursuing stand-up as a full-time thought in your head because you just aren't wired the right way to do this. Like, you can't start going. But the, see, but that same person also wanted all of the big things that comes with it, right? You, know, you yeah. want your cake and eat it too, but right? But you can't dabble and get there. Right. At some point, you got to commit. Right. Now, if you don't care about getting there then dabbling is fine. Mm-hmm. Then it's just a hobby, like golf or something, right? But if you like, oh, well, I want to be a big star and have my own TV show, but I only want to go into a club and go right on stage and walk off and never pay any dues, it's like, well, you're not living in the real world, and you don't want it badly enough. So I think people have to take stock of how badly they want it, understand how much they're going to have to have to sacrifice, and if they can do that and they're okay with that, then they should go and do it, and then they'll know if they're right to do it or not. And then they can come join you on stage and they can talk come on stage all about it. And they can say, I listened to your advice, and it was the worst advice anybody <laughs> ever gave me. No, I think it's really hard out there for anybody thinking about it. And circling back to the show, that's what I'm finding is, and I say in the show, life lives in the gray areas, and I really believe that. Like, nobody's life is perfect. People on the outside may look like that they have yeah. a perfect life, but they don't. And then when you really peel back the onion, there's something, no matter if they're rich or they're not rich, or they're a, a pastor or they're, you know, whatever, a mom, a dad, a son, there's something. Take solace in the fact that, you know, nobody's got a perfect life, and everybody's trying to figure something out in their life. And this show's a good place for people to come and just take comfort in the fact that there are other people like themselves like you might think you're just you're the only one going through what you're going through but then when you come to the show and you hear like wow though my life was tough that guy's kids committed suicide like you know what i mean yeah. like it, it's a really fun show because it's fun it's interesting it's funny but it also puts things in perspective for people it's called permission to speak paul mccario will put all the uh, link up for people to find it in the show notes if yeah. they're at new york new jersey or if they're visiting uh they can come get tickets and yeah. a great way to spend an evening i i love the show it was awesome thank you man thanks for coming and uh, i don't know why you asked for your money back afterwards but uh i sorry we couldn't read <laughs> no no i really appreciate you coming you know and, and taking the time to to hear it to see it and yeah. understand that before you had me on it really makes a big difference and it means a lot that it resonated with you because um it's more than just a comedy show for me so i'm glad yeah. that people are connecting with it and where can people find you online instagram uh, yeah paul mercurio m-e-c-u-r-i-o is my handle for instagram twitter and facebook at paul mercurio paulmercurio.com my podcast is there the paul mercurio show where i talk to people one-on-one about their what they do in their process all right my man all the best to you thank right. you so much thanks for having me man 
so many things I love about that interview. When we talk about the idea of discovering your purpose, it's that idea of cultivating a specific set of emotions within yourself and then sharing those emotions with other people through your service. And I don't know if Paul consciously realized this during the interview, but it's what I heard that his search for so many years for freedom to speak up, to be himself, to bring his art forward into the world is exactly the environment that he's creating in this show, Permission to Speak for everyday people like you and me. So definitely worthwhile, an amazing night of entertainment. Check out the show. We got the link to tickets here in the show notes. It's playing at the Actors Temple Theater in Midtown Manhattan. And if you love the interview today, let Paul and I know you're listening. Just screenshot the podcast, upload it to Twitter or Instagram, tag him at Paul Mercurio, and you can tag me at CSC Dan Mason. Don't forget, you can also give us a follow here on the iHeartRadio app or click subscribe on any podcast platform that you listen to. And those five-star ratings and reviews, so helpful with our placement and getting this message out there to more people that are looking to create their own life amplified. If you're looking for more info on how to work with me, you can go to my website and fill out an application, creativesoulcoaching.net. I've got a couple spots open for my one-on-one VIP coaching packages, plus an opportunity for one lucky person to join me in Orlando, Florida, November 15th and 16th for a VIP experience where you and I will work personally together to create your 2019. If you're looking to create a deep sense of purpose and be in a state of flow in your life, if you're really determined to leave a legacy and create the power to take care of the people that you love, if you want to be connected to yourself and making decisions from an intuitive place, not listening to the advice of other people, and find that confidence to really chase your dreams, this VIP day is going to be a game changer. We're going to get you in a peak state. I'm going to treat you to a day at Disney in Orlando. And then the next day, you and I are diving in for eight hours for intensive work to get you set up for an awesome 2019. You can email me for details. We'll leave that link in the show notes as well. As always, it is my deepest honor and privilege to serve you. Turn down the volume on your negativity. Turn up the volume on your purpose so you can get out there and live life amplified. I'll talk to you next time.